I believe that morale is the foundation of combat readiness. And morale is the totality of how you feel about yourself, your organization, the ship, the mission, your training, the readiness of your ship. It's, it's, it's everything about you as a sailor. Do I fit? Do I belong? Do I feel safe? Combat readiness is the cornerstone of our national security. And I reached under the, I reached under the podium and I pulled out a Budweiser and I said, and beer is good for morale. Therefore, beer is the foundation of our national security. Ralph Waldo Emerson said, in my walks, every man I meet is my superior in some way. And in that, I can learn from him. This means every single person you've ever interacted with has done something slightly different than every single other person and therefore has something to teach you and you, my friend, have something to teach them. This means every conversation you have is both a chance to learn something and a chance to make an impact. Every room full of people you walk into is both a library and your stage. And the better you get at getting to know people, the value they each inherently bring, and how to share it with others, the greater the impact you can make on the world. My name is Pablo Gonzalez, and I've created a system called the Relationship Flywheel, designed to create impact through relationships at scale. And this podcast is a living document of how to do it. So hit subscribe right now. If you want to learn how to get to know people, get them to know you, and build a world-class network. Some episodes will be interviews, some episodes will be regular calls with people building rapport, and some will be tactical advice to teach you how to build your own relationship flywheel and achieve anything you want. Now smash that subscribe button and let's get connected. Welcome to the Chief Executive Connector Podcast. I am Pablo Gonzalez, your host and Chief Executive Connector. And I've been dying for this conversation. It's been like three months that I want to have this conversation with a man that may or may not be the most interesting man in the world. He's a retired Navy captain. He's the owner and CEO of Orion Solutions. He's an active member of the community. He's got stories for days. He's worked on big Hollywood films. His daughter just got elected mayor. I mean, I I cannot wait to get into this. Captain Rick, welcome to the show, my friend. Thank you, Pablo. Again, I've been I've been pretty excited about this as well. So, so uh, I really look forward to having this conversation. Yeah, man, I love it. Listen, dude, at the core of everything I'm doing is this idea that there's so many people out there that have so much value to offer the world that you know are affecting a smaller circle of like an industry, a circle of people, a community, but there is there's so much things that I want to put at scale and you to me are that quintessential example, right? So like, let's, let's go, man. I don't know if you've listened to a lot of my podcasts, but I like to start with this idea that I think human connection is forged easiest in two ways. One is when you add value to someone's life and I'm pretty sure our conversation is going to, going to do that, but also sharing a vulnerability. So I asked my guests to kind of just share either something you're struggling with right now or something you've struggled with in the past so that our friend that's hanging out with us right now in their ear can can kind of get to understand how you tick. Well, first, let me just point out that I, I, I have in, late in life developed a, a smidgen of humility. So I don't claim to be the most uh, interesting man in the world, but I am, whenever I have my beard, I am the most interesting man in South Jacksonville Beach. So you set, your, you set the bar at a reasonable level and, and you move on from there. Uh, no, my journey is not that different from most people. I, I grew up in the military, so I didn't have a hometown. I chose the Navy because I didn't want to be drafted and go to Vietnam. because that, that was a problem. That was a reality for my generation. I'm an unrepentant baby boomer, but I understand that that comes with a whole lot of other baggage that we'll talk about later. But that's caused me to sit down and, and kind of ponder the reality of 2020 from the context of my own life experience. I, I joined the Navy to avoid the draft and I got in there and I said, holy mackerel, I'll just keep doing this as long as they keep promoting me and as long as they give me interesting things to do. I turned around 28 years later. I said, when did the draft end? You mean I, I could have quit in 1978? <laughs> so my life is really defined by, by the military. It's, it's part of who I am. It's part of my culture. I'm five generations of career military. But when I settled here in Jacksonville in 2003, I committed to putting my taproot down and turning this into my community. So I'm very much engaged across the across Jacksonville, across Jacksonville Beach, University of North Florida, 
and all the things I can do to contribute and give back to this community that's been so welcoming to me. I love it, man. I, you know, I, you know me, I'm, I'm also a community guy and I, and I learned it by the stuff that I see you doing, right? Like the face-to-face community creation, showing up to events, contributing to charities, you know, contributing to the local educational facilities, creating nonprofits, stuff like that. When did the importance of driving a stake in the ground and creating a community and really, really being part of that ecosystem as a, as like an extended family, when did that become obvious to you? 2003, actually before that, I, I was ordered, I had a set of orders to take command of a frigate here in Mayport. Uh, so the family came down early to find a place. I made my wife promise not to buy a lot and build another home. So we ended up buying a lot and building another home. And, and, and nobody really discussed this with me beforehand, but they never moved again. I moved seven more times. So it's very difficult to get follow-on tours in Mayport, Florida, if you're a, an officer with career with a solid career progression. But that's what, what what allowed my two daughters to finish high school here at Fletcher High School, to be part of the community, to 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 stay in the community. My older daughter is the mayor of Jacksonville Beach. She runs the uh, Beaches Museum and Historical Society. My younger daughter spent 13 years in the Navy, and she's back. So so having the family here limited any real expectation that I was going to go too, go too far away. So so I knew that if I'm going to do this thing, I'm going to do this thing with the same sort of military planning and precision that I do everything else. So I joined Rotary. I joined the Chamber of Commerce. I was active with our local congressman. I became very good friends with Congressman Crenshaw's executive director, Jackie Smith. And so... I also knew that, that, that back to the entrepreneur piece, this, the whole point of being here today as a CEO piece, there's little work for a guy like me at, at, at my level. So I created my own company. So Orion Solutions, I, I, I created it. And in fact, we're coming up on our 15th anniversary in our current iteration. We've got uh, the same four guys that came to me in 2006, 2007, 2008 are the same four guys that are here today that run this company. So message number one for our friend who's listening today is if loyalty is key, and loyalty is a product of trust. They know me so well that they can speak for me. They can finish my sentence. I don't have one work wife. I've got four. But more importantly, they know that I'm never going to work against their best interest. I'm never going to work against the best interest of, of the company. I'm never going to harm any of our employees. And I will never make a decision that puts any of us at risk. Life is not black and white. Life's got a lot of gray. Their jobs to keep me out of the gray and keep me in the white and let me make good, solid decisions based on the leadership tenets that we've been developing together for now 15 years. Got it. So this belief in investing in people, right? Like in growing this loyalty, that's something that was hard grained in you in the military. Did you enter the military already with some preconceived notions about that stuff? Was that a journey in the military world itself? Absolutely. You know, I, I'm a guest lecturer in leadership at the Honors College here at University of North Florida. And one of the interesting studies, I, I point out that if you read about leadership today, there come in three basic forms. There's a historical leader, i.e. a Lincoln, a Churchill, somebody who, who rose to an occasion, who happened to have the character to be the right person. And none of us will ever be a Churchill. None of us will ever face the sort of leadership challenges that, that Lincoln may have faced. But we all will face challenges at certain levels. So how you prepare for that is critical. The second are the what I like to call the uh, pop psychology, the Malcolm Gladwells, the 10,000 hours. The, they're all good and they all have interesting anecdotes. And then the third is what I call the scientific. And, and whenever you have a scientific endeavor trying to define something, they want to have a unifying theory. They want to have a definition that says leadership is bah, 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 and that's that's it. The reality is, is leadership is a lot like love. Any interpersonal relationship is, a, is it's, it's not, it doesn't lend itself to a clear definition. The other piece that people try to define is, are you born with leadership skills or do you develop leadership skills? And I answered that question with yes, a resounding and enthusiastic yes. I'm not the same person I was at 22. At 22, I was unsure of myself. I was brash. I was cocky. I embodied what they now call the, the Dunning-Kruger rule, where I knew nothing, but was absolutely convinced I had it all, all the answers. So I'm not the same person I was at 22 or 32 or 42. So by the time I took command of my frigate, I knew that if I didn't walk the walk, 
they would know that immediately. And then they would erode their trust in my ability to lead them into combat. I took command of my frigate right after the first Gulf War. I found myself in the Persian Gulf where there were people who wanted to kill me. Okay, I was in the Gulf when the start got hit back in 87. I brought her home. I was the exo of, of her sistership. So I knew that if I didn't focus on the health and well-being and the morale of every single sailor on my ship and understand that they needed to know their job, then I wasn't going to be able to command effectively. So it translates to what I'm doing now. There's a cost associated with not keeping your people happy. There's a cost associated with, and, 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 and I might save pennies on your hourly wage and lose dollars on having to train your replacement. Okay. And every day on LinkedIn, people don't stay for the money. They stay because they trust their bosses and they know their bosses are loyal. And so I knew that I've known that all my life. And, and that became a cornerstone of who I was both in command of my frigate, but also more importantly in command of uh, my cruiser. When I see people like you, right, I associate it with somebody that has infinite opportunities, has a deep belief in themselves, has people around them telling them you're super talented, you can do X, Y, Z. And if you are not fully utilized, then you're not going to sit in the same seat is kind of is kind of what I'm inferring from you just based on that personality type. What about the military made it so that 20 years pass and you just kind of looked around and like, oh my God, I'm still in the military, right? Like the like the, were they were they just squeezing the best out of you and promoting you as quickly as possible and, and giving you the best mentors? Like what is it that kept you so engaged in the military that made the time pass like the way that you described? Well there's three things that, that you need to understand first and it will be difficult for you to comprehend, but I was a late bloomer. And so I was actually very insecure. Uh, very insecure in my early youth, very insecure in college. My mom pushed me. She, she had three kids and she wanted me out of the house as quickly as possible. So I started the kindergarten a year ahead of most of my contemporaries. So by my senior year, I'm 16 years old and I wasn't some super prodigy. I didn't, I, I failed every physical fitness test I ever took until my senior year in high school, I got a D. So I was a late bloomer. And so I started my Navy career without a clear understanding that I was all of those things that you're describing. I'm still not so sure You've got me pegged. Okay. Neither um, am I, by the way. Well, again, I, I love that you think that. And I have enough people that are that have committed to being part of my team for the rest of their lives that there's okay, there's some good metrics that suggest I have some leadership skills. I'll accept those. So so I enter each of these engagements, each of these opportunities with a, 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 a little bit of humility. How do I know that I'm going to be value-added? How do I know that I'm going to be the right person for this job? As you mentioned, I had a chance to work on the movie Battleship. I'm representing the United States Navy. I've never been on a movie set before. I don't know who does what. I don't know anything. So my choices are to walk in and start being the captain or walk in and start being a captain. Choose to be a part of the team and find out how I can support them in getting their job done or I can walk in and be the captain and start telling people how to do it. That's a, that's a recipe for disaster. So I chose to, to, to take a more humble path and, and share with them what was appropriate based on the questions I was getting. So, so I had some ample, some, so I also went to a military college. I went to the Citadel. I rejected the, 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 the leadership model of the, of the 1950s or 60s, which was still in existence when I was there. I rejected it. I didn't think that a 19-year-old kid should be explaining to an 18-year-old kid how, you know, using using physical training techniques, what we now call hazing. I, I rejected it, and I didn't participate in it myself. So I always had a sort of a non-traditional leadership role. I didn't think that my sailors were a commodity to be used. I didn't feel that my sailors uh, were, were going to just necessarily blindly do what I tell them to do because I'm the captain. I needed to make sure that they felt self-actualized, they felt engaged, and they felt... So the idea of the inclusion that we're talking about today was the logical product of solid leadership on the deck plates across my entire crew. So, so in the Navy or in the military, we talk about morale, the organization's morale, which is the totality of does the sailor know what they're supposed to do? Do they feel empowered? Do they feel like they have the support of their leadership? Do they trust their subordinate, their, their peers? So if you think, for example, we had some collisions a few years back. If I were one of those sailors on those ships, I'd never be able to go to sleep on a ship again. I'd never do it. I would. The PTSD associated with being so horribly betrayed by the crew that was supposed to be uh, keeping watch over you while you were asleep, to me, 
is a horrific betrayal, almost sinful betrayal of, of the leadership tenets that I espoused. So I grew to I grew to who I am today. I wasn't I didn't come out of the gate. And there are guys who do. There are some guys out there much younger than me who I would work for tomorrow because they they got it. They got it. I had to grow it. Okay. So so there's no right answer to if you have it when you start, you have to grow it. There's I'm somewhere in the middle there and uh, perfectly happy to have arrived at a place where I generally get positive feedback on my leadership skill sets. Awesome, man. I guess my question was, oh, yeah. would you, you know, the longevity that you had in the Navy, right? When you first positioned your intro, you said you looked around, you're like, oh my God, I've been here for 20 years, right? Like the longevity, the ability to keep you engaged. Are you telling me that that is like right now, it kind of sounded like you have this concern over the people that were around you to not be commoditized. You wanted to challenge some leadership beliefs and make it better. Did your longevity there, was that guided by this need to, I don't know, protect people from the wrongs that you saw? Was it guided by this growth in leadership that you felt internally? Like what what, what kept you kind of just thriving in one place that kept you moving around for so long? Well, obviously, people have to have a goal. There's got to be a reason. There's got to be, as Simon Sinek says, there's got to be a why. For me, it was never rank. It was never a, being an admiral and that sort of thing. Although nobody with any sort of an ego would ever discount that. That never became a driving focus for me. Uh, all I ever really wanted to do, once I'd had command of my destroyer, I wanted to have command of a cruiser. I wanted a bigger ship. It's got to go from 200 people to 400 people, the capabilities and capacities. And I wanted to do that and purely ego purposes. I just thought that I would enjoy that. And I wanted to take some of the leadership ideas that I developed that were kind of contrary to the way we traditionally do business, and particularly in the surface Navy, and, and see if I couldn't take my sort of non-traditional leadership techniques to the next level. So that was my motivation. And so when I persevered, I went through a lot. Towards the end of my career, I was not a deep select for anything. I wasn't at the, I wasn't number one or two out of 10. I was number six out of 10 or seven out of 10. And good grief, they picked seven out of 10. And there I am. I'm in. I'm a C student. I got in. And so by the time I got to command of the cruiser, I had already kind of aged out of being even eligible for being an admiral. And it, it took that pressure off of me. I could now be the best captain of the best ship in the Navy. And I could work with my sailors and I could take care of my sailors and I could experiment with some of the leadership techniques that I thought would apply. Specifically, for example, you know, if, if your chief is not planned properly, or if the department isn't engaged in daily routine, at four o'clock on a Tuesday, the chief will say, hey, I need you guys to work for another two hours. Well, meanwhile, seaman recruits Smith's wife. He's 19, she's 18. They got a baby, it's in the car, it's Florida, and the AC's broken, and she doesn't know what time her husband's gonna get off the ship. And I said, that is not acceptable. I'm not just, I just, I don't have just 400 sailors. I've got 800 people, families and sailors that are relying on me to make the right decision for that sailor because it affects his wife and it affects his kids. Decisions I make strategically or tactically in the Persian Gulf. It's not just 400 sailors. It, it can change national foreign policy if I make a bad decision. We saw this on coal, where a singular event by the CEO of coal was a friend of mine, Kirk Lippel, and, and circumstances beyond his control changed national policy. We saw it when with the shootdown of the Iranian guns. You may be too young to remember the Iranian shootdown back in '88, but we again, you can by by making a mistake, you can change American policy. So I said, you know, I can't have my sailors be put in that position unless I protect them completely and train them and make them ready to go to war. Got it, man. So let's talk about one of those kind of like crucible moments in your life. I know that you've been reflecting recently in in LinkedIn of of this. Tell me about it. You've been you've been you've been you've been kind of like memorializing a, a very specific period of your life on LinkedIn. Give me the backstory a little bit. Okay, uh, twenty years ago, last month, on a foggy day like we've had today, uh, off the coast of Mayport, Florida, I took command of USS Way City, and normally. Yeah, you have the band and the admiral speaks and everybody's in uniform and they got all the chest candy hanging off their uniform and, you know, there's big crowds. And we did not do that. We were coveralls. 
we took the ship to sea the Thursday and cloudy and we we did it was not different than we would have done in 1810s 1820s 1830s where the incoming commanding officer you know makes his way to Panama or makes his way to Malta he salutes the captain of the of the ship that he's he's relieving and this is the time honored tradition he would read his orders and said upon receipt of these orders I will proceed as to the commanding officer and then you know, I would then read my orders. And this is how you turn over the reality of the new commanding officer. This is the inauguration. This is the time-honored tradition of a peaceful transfer of command. We did it at sea for the express purpose of creating the image that you, USS Way City, had not gone to sea on a deployment for quite some time. And you were going to deploy one year from today. And this was a symbolic transfer from a ship that had been doing science and technology sorts of stuff to going back to being a warship. So that was the first piece. Plus, I had a crew cut. And I was 20 pounds lighter and steely-eyed killer. But the other thing, and, I, and the part that's really most appropriate to today, is that I never served with women at sea. And so as I look at the, the national dialogue that we're seeing, that, that I'm late to the conversation, by the way, and I acknowledge that. But we're watching this, this horrible, horrible plague of sexual assaults and sexual-related murders in Fort Hood, Texas, the United States Army, the United States Marine Corps. I reflect back on, on, on having watched the United States Navy fail in integration, racial integration. We had race riots on ships in 1977, 1978, 1979. I was, I was in the Navy at that time. I saw it happen. And so often I see an abrogation of leadership. The lawyers create these processes, not the leaders. As a direct result, we create, in the case of, of women uh, at sea and women across the services, you can, if you don't manage it properly from a leadership perspective, create a, a, a protected class. You can create an environment where you men don't do that to the girls because they're special. And that's not what I wanted. I said, I called the crew together. I said, every single one of you is here because you bring a specific skill set to this team. I need every single one of you to be able to do your job, to know your job, to never worry about what's going to happen with one of your shipmates who might be rude to you. Uh, and oh, by the way, I, I called the crew together. I said, I've read all 87 pages of instructions, documentation, regulations, amplifying notices uh, on don't ask, don't tell, sexual harassment, sexual assault, fraternization, and, and hazing. I've read them all. I've read them all. I've read them all. All you need to do is this. Everybody pay attention. Get your picture. Don't be rude. Don't be rude, keep your hands to yourself. And if it sounds like something you heard in the second grade, okay? So, so what I said to my crew was, I need everybody to do the work that's necessary to protect our ship. I said, I made everybody raise their hands. Everybody got 10 fingers and 10 toes? Okay, 400 centers, that's 4,000 fingers, 4,000 toes. I've been charged by the Congress of the United States under orders of the President of the United States to take all 4,000 fingers and 4,000 toes into harm's way and return with 4,000 fingers and 4,000 toes. Now, I take this very seriously, and I don't differentiate between an Iranian gunboat who's trying to attack the ship or one of my sailors who has assaulted one of my other sailors. I will act as swiftly and as fiercely and ferociously to protect that sailor that's a victim as I will to protect the ship against an enemy. And old ladies, oh, by the way, ladies, I have two sisters, no brothers, two daughters, no sons. Tears don't work on me. And you're not here to be protected. You're a warrior. You wear a USS Way City ball cap. You're here to be part of my war fighting team. So you're not a victim. So do not be a victim. If for whatever reason you feel a threat that's too overwhelming for you to handle by yourself, and you're not getting the support you get from your chain of command, you walk up and knock on the door of my cabin, and I will deal with it immediately. And I had a couple really swift and furious responses. Everybody got it. Nobody dates anybody ever. And if you do, I will have to deal with you. They said, well, Captain, that's not what the rules say. Uh, if they're not in my chain of command. And they're, I said, oh, you all, I love all you Mestex lawyers. This is great. This is great. Go ahead. Try me. Okay. Because when you go to Captain's Mess, which is non-judicial punishment, well, I'm not going to charge you with, with, with fraternization if, if, it, if the fraternization regulation doesn't specifically describe whatever you do. I'll find something else. And you'll have to explain to your wife why you're, why you're restricted to ship. You'll have to explain to the personnel department why your pay is screwed up for the next four months as you try to 
you can figure out what. So, so I had, a, and again, I didn't want to use the stick. I used the reality of I can't take my eyes off of the horizon because people truly want to kill us. And if you make me come inside the lifelines to deal with some sort of a, a high school personnel matter, you're putting the entire ship at risk. And I'm the only one who knows what that means. I'm the only one who's commanded a ship in the Persian Gulf. I'm the only one who's done strikes into Baghdad. I did. I was the operations officer for the Enterprise Battle Group when we did Operation Desert Fox. I'm the only one who knows the. I'm the only one. So you have to let me stay focused on the horizon. If you misbehave and force me to go down into deck plates, I'm gonna. Have, you're putting my entire ship at risk, and I will react that way. Sorry, long story. <laughs> No, I love it, man. I thought it was really cool. Were you so the way you described it right now? It sounds like there was a seminal speech that you gave that kind of established these ground rules. Where were you headspace wise before that speech? Right, like yeah, I guess I you know like fill in the gaps for me of why you felt you needed to stand up and say that, and then once you figured out that you had to stand up and say something, how did you start crafting the message? Well, I'd watched the Navy bumble this for too many years. Through the 90s, again, I'd never had to face it myself. But I, I was, where would I, how would I want my daughters to be treated? What would be the environment that I wanted my sisters and my daughters to find themselves? So that's where I started. I said, you know, they're just, they, they joined the Navy to do a job. And so let's, how do I make sure that they have the opportunity to do the job? And I, without focusing on their gender, but creating an equality, a level playing field for everybody who's capable. Now, here's another interesting fact. 90% of my crew were male, 10% were female, and they're limited by the number of, of racks we have, places where they can sleep. The net result is we had some pretty extraordinary, smart, witty, thoughtful, deliberate young women on that ship. The average woman was much smarter than the average guy. Much smarter. And oh, by the way, if you're an 18-year-old girl and you're leaving your small town or wherever you're from to join the Navy, it requires a certain sense of soul and a certain sense of heart and a certain sense of courage. But a lot of my guys, they said, well, I finished high school, kind of, and I don't want to go to college, so what am I going to do? And so that's how they end up on my door. The women were completely different. So I needed to make sure they felt safe, that they were given the opportunity to perform to the maximum level of their of their ability and, and not provide them protection. If I put a fence around them and protected them, then all of the guys would feel like they're somehow in a, they're disenfranchised. They, you know, we all think of a zero-sum game. If I've given them something, it's because I've taken something from my group. So I try to make sure that they understood that that's not what I'm doing. I'm creating an environment what we would call today inclusive environment. I would call it an environment with high morale. The results the same. So I had seen this happening for a while. And so I, I was, I, I called the crew together periodically. I try to keep it to a single message. In this case, it's, it's, it's how to treat your shipmates, boys, girls, girls, boys. I don't care. If I see two sailors touching, whether they're boys, boys, girls, girls, boys, girls, or some combination of the same, it's either fighting or sexual assault. Those are your choices. And nothing disrupts the morale of a ship quicker than a, a barracks thief or a fist fight. Because now people choose size and there's a, ah. and, it, and I didn't even care if they dated. I did, I did, I did. But the reality is, is that's not the problem. The problem is when they break up. Now I have a disturbance in the force. I've got a disruption of the leadership matrix and I've got to go back and fix it. So it's better for me. You're all family. You're all part of the same family. We're not in West Virginia. You don't get to date. That's period. So, so I had to make that statement early on because I'd seen too many other ships fail. Too many other ships. And it's not just the sailors. Because, you know, a lot of my married sailors were, would have gotten themselves in trouble. And now I'm talking about families again. Now I'm talking about families again. Did it happen? Yes. Was it prevalent? No. Was I aware of it when it happened? Typically not, but when, as soon as I became aware of it, I squashed it. So what happened is the sorts of things that would be contrary to good order and discipline, a distraction to me as the captain, were dealt with at a much lower level, which is what I wanted. I wanted to be dealt with at a much lower level, much more discreetly, and deal with it and get back beyond it. So I, I felt it was necessary to have this conversation. My talk to the crew was about five years in the making. 
because it was something I knew I would have to do at some point in my career. But I was passionate about it. I'd seen it happen. I've been watching it happen. And I said, there's a better way to do this. And I've got over 100. I had about 40, 40 female sailors on my ship at any given time. I got about 100 of them total across the time I was there. 50 of them are on Facebook now today. Still being successful, still doing very, very well. That's my metric for leadership. If they still want to stay in touch, they keep cracking cat more. I love it, man. I love it. So it sounds it sounds like your your thoughts around creating an inclusive environment have one part enablement, another part equalization. Is that is that kind of what I'm hearing? Uh, absolutely, and they're related. They're absolutely related. In, in, in fact, enablement is is essentially the result of equalization and, and just making sure that that, that that everybody has the tools, the time, and the training to do their job. And my job is to protect, is to ensure that they have the ability to do the job to the best of their ability without being in any way hindered by someone inside the lifelines, someone inside the ship, a crew member, a chief petty officer, or, or, or a junior officer who's their superior causing them to make moral decisions, causing them to think about what, what something that's morally right or wrong. I said, I, I'll tell you what's morally right or wrong. You do what you want to do, but I'll tell you absolutely what's what's contrary to good order and discipline and what I'm going to react to. And you make better decisions when you know that you'll be, that I will react swiftly. And here's what's interesting. My relationship with my crew, they say, oh, you're talking to me just like your kids. I, I literally came home one day and I had just talked to some of my chiefs. They said, you're talking to them just like your kids. And I got home and I was talking to my daughters and if you're talking to us just like your sailors. I said, Hey, guess what? I got one speech. It's the same speech. It's the same message. It's the same idea. Nothing changes just because you're 19 and you live in my house or if you're 19 and you live on my ship, the message is the same. The long-term goals are the same. So. I find it really interesting, man, that I, so I'm, I'm very marked by the fact that I had an older sister in a Hispanic household. So that like double standard has always been very prevalent to me and her, she was always very vocal about it and was always four years older than me. So she could kick my ass up until like, you know, I was 16, 17. And I've also come to the same place where it's to me, I, I have no problem having friends as woman because I call them dude. You know, like I, I, I talk the way I talk around anybody across gender. I've, I've now gotten to the point and I figured this out late in life, but across generations as well, right? Like the, the idea that I don't have to speak country club talk when I talk to someone older to me was a, was a learned behavior just because it's like the more I am myself, the more successful I am in general. And the more I attract people that are subscribed to my mission as well. This, and I hear a lot of authenticity, you know, in your message of equality, I hear authenticity. When did you, did you have a moment in your life when you're like, you know what? I don't have to be two separate people. I am going to just continue to lean into this integrity of who I am inside and outside. Or, you know, has that been a gradual thing as well? Well, my dad was West Point class in 1950. So he, he came of age during World War II. His father was a brigadier general working on MacArthur's staff in the Pacific. My mother's father was a colonel and campaigned across North Africa and landed in Sicily in command of troops. Their fathers, my grandfather patrolled the southwest border of the United States. He, he protected the border from immigrants in Brownsville, Texas on cavalry. I mean, he was 1920s, 1930s. So let's put it in perspective. I am a middle child with two sisters. My mother was working in the 50s and 60s when women weren't working out of the household. We had a rotation by the time I was around eight years old, one of us sat and cleared the table, one of us did the dishes, and one of us cooked. I was in that rotation. I was in that rotation. As recently as last night, my wife and I prepared a leg of lamb and potatoes. I am a cook. I do dishes. I, I didn't see that there was any gender norms focused on one, one household task or another. So for me, it was never an aha moment. It was more of like, why don't these other people get it? Yeah. That we all are here to do a job, and 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 yes, at 19, 20, 21, 22, I absolutely women, I absolutely person, uh, 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 what's the expression, uh, uh, sexualized women. Of course, I did. I was 20, 21, 22, 23. 
But at the same time, I also could compartmentalize, hey, this is this is somebody I have to work with. This is somebody that's important to the, the success of my mission. So, so for me, and again, I tell people, I didn't raise daughters. I have two daughters, no sons. I chose not to raise daughters. I rose, I raised people. So that when my older daughter said, you know, I want to run for city council in Jacksonville Beach, I okay, why not? When my younger daughter was 10 or 9, I, I'm not a big sports guy. I, I was a terrible athlete. I'm still very clumsy. Uh, so I didn't play baseball as a kid. My younger daughter wants to play baseball. You mean softball with the girls? No, no, I want to play baseball with the boys. Okay, well, fine. So I'd never played catch with the girl. I'd never done it. So off, you want to do that, then that's what we're going to go do. So, so making sure that they could, and ultimately my younger daughter spent 13 years in the United States Navy as a surface war officer. And she was very successful, very successful. You know, sometimes you have to make a choice between staying at sea and having a family. And so I don't, I don't question that choice at all. I have now two beautiful grandkids. But so no, it never was an aha moment to me. It was always a curiosity as to why other people don't see it the way I see it, because it only makes sense to treat everybody as people and hope that everybody gets the job done and moves forward. And it's not critical. The other thing that was interesting, I grew up on army bases. And very often the whole issue of race was different because more often than not, I'm, I'm an army base. I'm going to school out in town and the, the divide isn't black and white. The divide was post kids and town kids. So I found myself very often being confronted by a group of town kids with a group of post kids of, to include young black men who I played football with or played, you know, grew up with. They, they, they're from the, they have a shared life experience for me despite their race. That was in, I went to high school in Hawaii where I was a minority. So that was an interesting time for me. I went to a public school in Hawaii. I did not get to go to Punahou like some people, but I went to Radford High School and and I was a racial minority. So it, it gives you a certain respect for the folks that you deal with and, and a certain understanding of, of, of how they might feel. That's interesting, man. I'm reading, I'm reading this book, Barbarian Days, about this guy that grew up in Hawaii and like early days of surface. You know, it's it's very much that, right? Like it's very much the white guy is the howly and the minority and you know, you're, you're kind of like navigating this world of like gangs and influence and, and, and the racial divide that was happening in Hawaii at that time, which I don't think the average American knows very much about. Well, the, the, the interesting thing, though, is I, I had because I moved around so much growing up, I understood that there was this whole issue of uh, a natural selection of what I now call university tribes, uh, not, not capital T tribes, but groups. So I realized that if I went out for wrestling, that the wrestling tribe would be my tribe. And that wrestling tribe encompassed pieces of and parts of the entire school across the race. And in fact, most of the kids on the wrestling team were not white. I mean, Samoan, Japanese, Chinese, a lot of Filipinos in my high school. In fact, one of my closest friends today, Joe Tanaga, has got two doctorates and teaches finance and corporate law in London. Filipino guy, Joe Tanaga, go figure. And again, they would not have created uh, a place, a safe place for me. They would not have included me in the tribe if I joined the tribe to be in the tribe and had not paid my dues, showed my loyalty to the group, committed. And one of the first of the, you know, the five elements of trust, the first element is competence. Okay. I'm not going to, I'm not going to rely on you if you're not able to do what you've said you're going to do. Of course, the second is of course, reliability. So, so they had to trust me. They had to grow custom to me and I had to be competent and loyal to the group in order to be, to, to receive that kind of, a, that protect, protective cocoon. And once the rest of the school realized I was in the rest on the wrestling team doing something for the school, then they were uh, much more amenable to who I was. I didn't have any trouble my senior year. I did fine. I did fine. That's a really good breakdown of there is the sports tribe is a tribe, but it's part of the tribe of people that serve the school, which then makes you part of a larger tribe. That is a bit of an equalizer. I really like that, man. Yeah. I like I like that that thought process and that I I've always loved team sports for the camaraderie, right? Like it, it is that 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 tribal feeling. I think is very very primal for us. Yeah. And and I find that another thing fascinating is this idea that I, again I'm I'm just connecting to you in the sense that influenced by female family members to have the specific outlook on life, moved around a decent amount was a 
minority that's supposed to be a majority kind of thing. I've, I, I've always felt that my whole life because I've never really felt particularly American or particularly Venezuelan or particularly Cuban or anything like that, right? So, but I look like a white guy. So everybody assumes I'm part of the majority, right? So I think that's really, that's really fascinating. At what point did you start really caring about the environment? Oh, that goes back to my youth. You know, again, I, I'm, I'm an oceanographer and a marine biologist by inclination, dating back to eight, nine, ten years old. I was fortunate enough to get uh, a, a biology degree undergraduate. I was fortunate enough for the Navy to send me to a, master, a master's program at the, University, at the Navy Postgraduate School in Monterey in oceanography. In those days, they, the Navy still doesn't really care about the environment, really doesn't care about the critters. But I was able to convince a professor to sponsor a marine biology thesis project. So I was I was diving in Monterey Bay for almost two years. And so I've always been fascinated by, by all of that aspect of the oceans in particular. One of my closest friends, I, I have, because I moved around, I went to three different high schools. Okay. So my, I met a guy three weeks before school started my senior year, who's still my best friend. He is a criminal enforcement attorney for the EPA. Specifically, he's the expert on the Clean Water Act enforcement. And so I've been part of his whole journey. I've seen the whole thing. I'm a volunteer. I volunteered to be on a, a nonprofit. Ultimately, it was a bunch of lawyers and a bunch of scientists. And I'm neither, but I, I can speak lawyer and I can interpret for the scientists. And so they, I was the chairman of the board within the second, by the second meeting, only because I knew how to run a meeting. So now I'm very active with the Chesapeake Legal Alliance. I've, I've, I've reached out and touched the, Florida, the North Florida Land Trust. They're local. They're doing some very important things. It's interesting. So... You know, I drive down JTB every morning. I just am just baffled by the amount of trash on the side of the road. Yeah, there's a so there's a social con. I read, I saw a thing on LinkedIn a year or so. Oh, the minimum social contract is push your 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 grocery cart back to the. No, your minimum social contract is don't throw crap out your car window. Over a over a bridge that is over a freaking marsh, man! Like, god damn it! <laughs> oh my god! Oh my god! I see. I, I saw a mattress on the on the media and on JTB. For about three weeks, I had to complain to my mayor. Yeah. So, so yeah, I mean, it's a minimum social contract. If you buy the big gulp, keep it in the car till you find a place to throw it away. And so, 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 just, just the, just the discipline, the ill discipline of people who, who forget recycle plastic. Just don't throw it out the window. Even if you just stop doing that, that's a step in the right direction. So beaches go green and, and, and all of these wonderful organizations, I support all of them. My, my fear is, is, that, is that we're never going to really, really make an inroads into those people that are so insensitive and so out of touch with their impact that they're willing to just throw, throw a bag of trash. Out. I see literally household. Yeah. I was hiking in Colorado with my bride and we walk on this beautiful scenic overlook, pull the car over and I look, I'm in Colorado. Colorado. They're kind of green there. And I looked down below me and it looks like somebody had just dumped four or five trash cans full of, of household trash down the side. You can't even go get it. So anyway, so the issue of the environment is important to me. I did a, I did a, a paper when I was in, in undergrad regarding the ozone layer. Uh, the impact of human activity on the environment was something that seemed so self-evident to me, even before there was scientific evidence to support it, that, that to, to deny it was kind of mind-boggling to me. Of course we can deplete the fishes. Of course we can we can take all the forest down. We're doing it. We've done it. It's 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 it's, it's mind-boggling to me though that we don't have a better appreciation of the reality. Again, I don't need to see a lot of science to to recognize that we have made an impact. So von Humboldt, Alexander von Humboldt. Okay. Alexander von Humboldt is the giant upon whom Darwin stood. He's a giant upon whom every major environmentalist, every major ecologist. In the late 1700s, Alexander von Humboldt was, was, was touring parts of South America. He literally climbed the highest mountain in South America in street clothes. Okay. He wrote a paper that talked about the impact, the micro, the microenvironmental impact of farming on the distribution of water in Venezuela and Colombia. Okay, in 1798. Sure. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So, 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 and poor Alexander von Humboldt. It could be that the Germans fell out of favor during the 1918 and 
1940s, but, but Alexander von Humboldt is a, someone that should be studied. He got it. He was a polymath. He got it. He remembered everything he'd ever seen, kept copious notes. Uh, he's the guy from whom currents are named. He's the guy from whom there is a, something named for von Humboldt on every continent in, America, in the world. Yeah. So anyway, but he was able to actually measure the change of, of climate on the micro ecosystem just based on farming in what would otherwise be a marshland. And, and again, in Venezuela and Colombia. So I'm sorry, 300 years later, we have better tools. We can measure the climate. We know it's true to turn it into a political football is mind boggling to me, mind boggling. So, so yeah, I've been, I've been watching the environment since I was a kid. I, I love it, how it impacts species, how it impacts. Are you familiar with the blue, the blue land crab? Make me very, more familiar, please. Very common in the Keys, very common yeah, in yeah. South Florida. Yeah, if, if I have, a, have, am I familiar? Have I seen it all over the place? Yes, absolutely. Yeah, you've seen them down south. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I grew up in Miami. I'm sitting, I'm sitting in my backyard last summer, and I heard a little funny little clickety clicky clicky sound. And I looked down, and it was a blue lane crab about this size. Two weeks later, they're not common north of Daytona. Okay. Two weeks later, we found one in my garage. Now, I haven't seen some any sense, so I don't know if there's but this this indicates to me that you can deny you can deny the environment, you can deny climate change. I mentioned to you that my best friend at the EPA, he had this bumper sticker made. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So the fact that we're seeing migration, you can, you can, you can. There's other other metrics. You know, there's there's something called the citrus line. I don't know if you're familiar with that. It's the line north of which it's the line north of which oh, the citrus line. Yeah, yeah. You can't you can't cultivate oranges. Mm-hmm. Well, guess what? That line's moving north. You can deny it all you want, but it's happening. And you say, wait a minute, what about all these giant storms and snow and uh, not global warming per se, but the violent storms are going to get more violent and more common. Correct. Okay. And so when people ask me, when are you going to leave Jacksonville? I said, I don't know yet, but soon. And when I do move, it's going to be inland and up. Yeah. Inland yeah. and up. Listen, man, it's, it was, I would say one of the top three reasons I left Miami, right? I looked around and I thought to myself, I am a person whose entire value is based on my connections in this one city. And this one city in the next 20 to 25 years has a solid chance of being majorly disrupted by climate change and being the sacrificial lamb for first world, you know, climate change problems. And in 20, 25 years, I'm not really going to want to feel like reinventing myself. So I'm going to just go do it now. <laughs> right. Like, I mean it, right. Like that was my, one of my top three reasons, right. It was like surfing. It was the opportunity that, that, that I came to, to prove community creation on another scale. That wasn't just my hometown and yeah. that, right. So as I see it, I feel that my generation, it's kind of that like litmus test, right? My generation of old millennials, young Gen Xers, we're pretty split on, you know, we're kind of split down the political lines. We're split to woke on it, right? And then I find the younger I get, the more it's like obvious that these kids care about the environment as much as I do, even though I'm an outlier within my own generation. And as I go older, it... I, do you sense that it's split in your generation? Do you sense that people in your generation don't understand it as much as they should? And what what are we fucking missing here, man? Like, what is what's your take on it? If I had if I had if I had the ability to answer that question cogently, I would. It's become politicized. It's, it's if you believe in global warming, you must be a Democrat. You must like Al Gore. Al Gore is your god. And if you're, you know, I, I was a Republican. I, I, I'm still a registered Republican. Yeah, so am I. But, 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 you know, it, it, it's. It, I saw an interesting graph about a year or so ago that showed if you looked at what the the, the appreciation for various policies of the Democrats versus the Republicans for, you know, ten years ago, the the distribution would look something like this, where 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 the peaks are slightly on either. I, I drew the long the line the wrong place, but. And now, and now, what you have is something more like more like this. Where where the, the the overlap the overlap is just this tiny little section here, as opposed to sixty or seventy percent overlap, particularly on issues like you know social social moderate 
fiscal conservative. That could be either. But now there's so many other elements that are pulling the two groups further and further apart. So I find even in my generation, even amongst people with a similar background to mine, international travel, uh, uh, higher education, a broader worldview that are falling down on the idea that, 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 that having some sort of a social Democrat network, some sort of a, some sort of a education system that, see, see, all these are, when I took command of Way City, the idea was my job to provide everyone the tools, the time, the training to do their job. If I'm the president of the United States, and I did the exact same thing. Everybody should have the tools, the time, and the training to do their job. That means they should be educated. They should be given ample opportunity for to, to perform to the highest level of their ability. They should have access to healthcare. Turns out I'm a communist. I had no idea. I had no idea until just now that I'm, I'm basically a socialist. The reality is, is it, it's, 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 for me, it's a natural extension of how I led USS Way City. I want everybody on that ship to be given an opportunity to excel to the highest level of their ability. Education is one of those. Access to access to promotion is another one. So anyway, as I, as I alluded to you uh, last time we chatted, this summer has been quite the eye-opener for me. I've read a number of books that have caused me to sit back and evaluate what I thought was truth based on. I went to the Citadel. We're the guys that, that, that fired the Star of the West to start the Civil War, and we're still proud of that. I remember running down the sidelines of a football game, waving a Confederate flag, and I was proud of that in 1973. Well, it's time to rethink what I believed to be true back then and, and, and put it and put it to a true historical test. And it turns out I was a bit of a jerk. Who knew? That is a really, really good way to summarize the tribalism that we're experiencing and the need for just self-reflection and being okay with the fact that, you know what, back in those times, that was what I thought because I was a young man and I may have been a bit of a jerk, but now as an old man and I look back and I'm a wise man, you know, I'm, I'm able to, I'm able to grow, man. I really, really, I like how you, I like how you summarized all of that. And it is wider than just the environment. It is this like political football game that we've turned somebody into offense and somebody into the defense for no fucking reason. <laughs> like, yeah. so. Well, again, it, 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 it I, you know, for me, as I get in these conversations with some of my peers, I say it's about character. Is this somebody you would work for? Would yeah. you invest in this guy's company? Would you would you would you accept a job from this guy? Okay, I mean, and the answer is only you know. As I said earlier, trust is the key to leadership. Trust is the key to loyalty. If I don't trust you, I will follow you only so long as my self interest and your self interest co- 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 correspond. That explains a Flynn. That explains a Manafort. That explains a lot of fellow travelers, uh, Lindsey Graham, that says, as long as my self-interest and your self-interest uh, uh, correspond, then I'll follow you. And then, boom, the minute that's done, I'm out of here. Well, okay. So, so and again, it's a matter of character. And, and if you don't have character, I can't trust you and I can't work with you. I just, I just can't commit to you. And that's, that's, that's a go, no go for me. And, you know, it's, it's, it's not just what I, it's not just, it's not just what I say It's who I truly, who I am. I mentioned my father. He went to West Point in the late 50s. His nickname at West Point was Straight Arrow. Now, imagine imagine every stereotype you might have of, of, of a West Point grad during the 40s and 50s. You know, the movies. of They were all straight arrows. Now, to be a straight arrow out of a group of already really straight arrows to the point where you were called out for it. Even when I was a kid, he you know, when you get a receipt at a restaurant, he would study because it was handwritten and some poor gal was going to do the math. He would look at each one of them. He would find it. If he found an error, 75% of the time, the error was in his favor. 100% of the time, he would call that error to the attention of the waitress. And even if they said, no, no, don't worry, it's no big deal, he would pack. Because, and I do this now. I'm, uh, next week, I'll be teaching at the Honors School, at the, or the, uh, the Honors College Leadership course. And one of the things I do is I, is I pull out a $20 bill and I throw it on the ground. And I say, okay, you come along, you look around, always around, you pick it up. Are you stealing? Half the room says no. Okay, so define stealing. And that's uh, and they'll say all the definition for every one of them is correct. Is taking something that's not yours. So are you stealing? Now some of them start to think about it. 
You don't know, you don't know whose this is, but you know whose it isn't. Now that being said, I'm gonna pick it up and put it in my pocket too. I mean, I'm not stupid, but at the same time, I acknowledge what I've just done. And if somebody comes to me and says, hey, I dropped that. Okay, I know it's not mine. It may or may not be his, but I don't know it's not his. So, so at that point, you have now you have a moral dilemma. If you haven't thought it through, and that's why so much of leadership, and that's why the advantage of the leadership course is to cause you to put, put your brain in environments where you grew up in one way, finders, keepers, losers, weepers. That was what your parents were trying to teach you so you wouldn't leave your stuff around. I found sailors using that as an excuse to take stuff that wasn't theirs. Finders, keepers, losers, weepers. You're a loser. I took, no, I found it. I get to keep, no, 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 no. You don't get to, no, that's stealing. That's stealing. That's stealing. And all that stuff your dad used to tell you about protecting yourself, defending yourself. You do that on the ship. That's assault. Everybody goes to your captain's mess. You know, if somebody punches you and you punch them back, everybody's going to come see you. Every, that's assault. You don't get to do that. The sorts of things that were, that they used to teach you to be a human being at eight, nine, 10, 11 years old. Don't necessarily translate when you're 22, 23, 24. In my world, and I'm going to explain to you where they, where they differ. But I love that. Finders, keepers, losers, weepers. No, no, you don't get to take stuff that's not yours. So first, you got to calibrate. you got to understand what that means. What's the framework? Frame, framing is critical. Framing is critical. So I told my guys, I said, look, I'm not so smart. I might stumble. I might get distracted. I see shiny things. I, I said, oh, wow, let's go do that. If you ever hear me say to do something you think's in the gray, or if you see me going into the gray, I have made a mistake and I don't realize it. And your job is to keep me out of the gray. Your job is to keep me focused on what we're doing. I'll give you an example. We had a major contract that we knew was coming up for recompute. It was going to be awarded on the 20th of January. What do you normally do to your employees around Christmas time? Give them bonus. You give bonuses. Now I had 30 employees who who I knew had a reasonable chance of not being my employees on the 20th of January. But what did I do at Christmas time? Give my bonus. It's the right thing to do. Right it's the right thing to do. I lost the contract. Less than less than a month after I gave very good bonuses, every one of them now is no longer my employee. But you know what? It was the right thing to do. And I feel good about it. And you know where that, as a small business owner, you know where that money comes from? Your pocket. This pocket. Yeah, this pocket. I was the small business owner, I'm familiar. I was able to keep this 20 for the purposes of illustrating this, this concept. But uh, yeah, but it was the right thing to do. It was the right thing. They worked hard for me all year. I'm not, I'm not buying your loyalty the future. I'm paying you for your loyalty in the past. I'm, bon I'm, I'm, I'm rewarding you for what you've done for me already. I knew that I might lose them. And I and I fully funded their 401k and I gave them a bonus because I knew that it was the right thing to do. As a person that is clearly playing the infinite game and playing long term and 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 understanding, you know, leadership at that level and now talking about it in a dollars and cents equation. Do you think that in order to be the person that you have to be, the leader that you have to be? You've left money on the table that hasn't been paid back to you in some other way, or do you think like do do you think you have sacrificed to be a leader, and in the in the net result it's sacrifice, or do you think the net result is long term? No doubt in my mind, net results long term payoff. And example, two thousand thirteen, two thousand eleven, I came back from the movie. I just did a big project in Taiwan. I was rolling in dough. Boom! Everything fell apart in March of two thousand twelve. I took myself off the payroll for 18 months. I went and took a consulting job up in Washington, D.C. for that period. We kept working here. They kept getting paid, but I took myself off the payroll for the purposes of keeping the company alive so we could get to the next level. January 2013, a company that we teamed with, it was a small business set aside. They'd outgrown it. They teamed with us. They were the incumbent. We went it. Boom, everything was back to normal. So, so there's no question in my mind that if it, the moment that I was no longer committed to this company, why would they be? And so the moment I'm no longer committed to, to, my, to my leadership team, my two master chiefs and my senior chiefs, the moment I'm not committed to them, why would they be committed to me? So you have to walk the walk. You have to talk the talk. 
and, and you have to be prepared to take sacrifices. One last illustration before you go. We provided support for the turnover of the USS McInerney to the Pakistani Navy. So for over a year, I spent uh, three days a week teaching the officers of, the, of the, this ship, the PNS Allen Gear, the former USS McInerney, how to operate the ship, how to lead the ship, how to manage the ship, how to do maintenance on the ship. And I was inside the lifelines of these guys for the entire period. Now, we were a subcontractor to a much bigger company. And even though I'm a retired Navy captain, I was working for a guy that's a retired chief warrant officer. Now, all of the navies that use the Royal Navy model are very much hierarchical and very focused on rank and on prestige, and on class structure. And so they had just reconfigured one of the, one of the birthing spaces on the ship for an embarked Commodore, which is a captain. And they said, so I'm about to transit the Atlantic in March with a crew of Pakistanis on a small surface ship. Now think about this, wintertime, North Atlantic, Sounds brutal, man. Okay. Now, now you have a multicultural background. Have you eaten much mutton growing up? No. Okay. Most Americans haven't. I've eaten my fair share of mutton for the rest of you. Because that's a normal, that's a normal part of the menu in the Pakistani. So 14 days, I'm transiting, and they said, You're the captain, you should be in that space. And I said, I'm a subcontractor working for that guy. So he's the leader of this team. If anybody from this group should be staying up there, it should be him. Well, he's a warrant officer. They can't do that. No, he's not a warrant officer. He's a civilian team leader. No, he was once a warrant officer, and I'm a retired captain. I slept in the middle rack of enlisted birthing. Huh? 60 years old at the time. Let me say that again. 60 years old at the time. Middle rack, enlisted birthing. You can't even roll over. You can't read a book in your rack. For 14 days. And you know what? You know why he did that? It was the right thing to do. It was the right thing to do for the team. And as a result, the, the, the company that was our prime contractor threw a whole bunch more work our way because they said, this is a guy that will do whatever it takes to make sure the team is successful. I'll never do it again. Don't get me wrong. It was like camping out. Sure, it was fun, but I'm never, but but at the time it was the right, it was the right answer. It was the right answer. Okay. Camping out. I can do this. So that's a perfect illustration of the right thing to do leading to leading to long-term gains. I love it, man. Really well put. Captain Rick, man, this was, you know, I knew that this would be a real pleasure and you have over-delivered, right? Like I, on a general note, I think the archetype that you represent is the, is the archetype that I, that I would love to put more on a pedestal in your generation of white guys, <laughs> right? Like it is what it is, right? Like I, like I, I, I really do think that like, I, I applaud you for being an extraordinary thinker and an evolved guy in a society that doesn't really incentivize that for, for who you are and, and, and where you need to be. And I think that, that that is what we need more of in this space. And it's just exactly why I'm into doing this thing, right? Like this whole, like providing, providing an audience and, and, and putting somebody's message at scale, man. So, you know, I appreciate you, man. I'm glad we're friends. And, you know, I'm, I'm very much looking forward to, to seeing, you know, where this goes and, and, and what, you know, what this next kind of like iteration of who you are and what your message is going to be is. I appreciate that. Before I close, I got two thoughts. The first is, uh, do you know the difference between a fairy tale and a sea story? What's that? Fairy tales all start once upon a time. Sea stories all start this no shit. <laughs> when I took command of Way City, and I told you we did it at sea, and I and I, I literally I was channeling I was channeling Truxton and Bainbridge and all those guys that that traveled for sometimes for months to get to the station where their ship was assigned, checked aboard turned over the commanding officer at sea for me to do it at sea was just the best possible thing. Typically at these events, there's a big long speech and there's bands and blah, 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 blah. now the crew is staying out. It was a day like today, 62 degrees, foggy, literally a day, just like today. If you drove over the bridge on JTB, you know what I'm talking about. So my predecessor, he reads his orders. 
he salutes me. He said, I'm ready to be relieved. I said, I relieve you, sir. And I turned, I read my orders. And then I said, it's customary for an incoming commanding officer to keep his remarks brief. I am a man of tradition. We will speak again soon. XO dismissed the crew. That was my entire speech. Love it. That's great. The key to building your relationship flywheel will rely in your ability to design and build your own stage where you can have conversations with people, getting to know them, understanding their value, and sharing it to the world. This is the service that I offer, and I offer it to $100 million companies where we're setting record-breaking sales goals with it. If you want to know more about that, go to connectwithpablo.com. If you're just an individual that wants to build it, subscribe to this podcast and subscribe to my email list on my website because coming soon is a community where I'm going to teach this to you personally. Go to connectwithpablo.com.